Lord and our God. You are a God of truth. We praise you that you have revealed your truth in your word, your word of life, the living word of our Savior Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would take your word and use it in our lives for your glory, that we might have new affection and understanding of the glory, the majesty, the greatness of our Redeemer. In Christ's mighty name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22, verses 47 to 53, page 882 in your pew Bible. The word of our God. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Ralph Davis recounts how George Washington was in New Jersey at New Brunswick, late November of 1776. And he was presented a message that was handed to him. It was from General Charles Lee to Adjutant General Joseph Reed, who was in the western part of New Jersey, uh, wrestling up more folks for the militia. And out of habit, Washington read the letter that was handed him, and he read of the writing of Washington's fatal indecision of mind. The two generals were scheming behind Washington's back against him. So Washington calmly forwarded the letter to General Reed with an apology for opening it. The way we respond to people and to circumstances reveals much of our character. And in this passage, we see Jesus responding to the treachery of a betrayer. 
the defensive loyalty of his faithful disciples, unsheathing a sword, and the un under the covered darkness seizure of his enemies who were dead set against him. And while this passage depicts the actions of Jesus's betrayer and of one of his disciples and of the religious leaders, the primary focus is upon Jesus's response to a faithless traitor, loyal disciples, and his outright enemies. In Jesus's response, we see his majesty, his glory, and the darker the forces of evil are arrayed against him, the more brilliant is the blaze of his integrity and his righteous glory. There's such a contrast here that he alone is the one in whom there is no guile. Truly, he is the promised one from God, the son of man. And in this hour of his suffering, we see the rays of his grace and his beauty, his majesty, in his glory. So in this passage, we see first of all in verses 47 and 48, a gracious appeal. And then in verses 49 to 51, a corrective miracle. And then finally, in verses 52 and 53, gutless wonder is exposed. So first, there is a gracious appeal in verses 47 to 49. And Luke, as a marvelous storyteller, narrows his focus from the approaching crowd to the man, to a man named Judas, one of the 12, the leader of this nighttime posse mob. It must have dawned on the disciples now, why was it that Judas left the supper and slipped away at night? He acted as a spy, but now he acts as a traitor, as one, as a friend of Jesus, who now has enabled Jesus' most hostile enemies to capture him under the cover of darkness. And Judas seeks to plant a kiss, a kiss of friendship upon Jesus to single him out for capture into the hands of his deadliest enemies. Psalm 41 reminds us, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate bread, my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In Psalm 51, Psalm 55, for it is not my enemy who taunts me, but it is you, my companion, 
my familiar friend. This kiss of greeting was an expression of friendship, of esteem, even of affection and genuine love. And here it's used in this betrayal is a heinous thing. It is the height of irony that this gesture of profound honor and affection of intimate friendship is used for the most evil and wicked of a mission. But in love, it's in love that Jesus approaches in majestic calmness his betrayer, Judas, for his shameless act of treachery and hypocrisy by calling it what it is and addressing him with true spiritual compassion, calling him by his personal name. Here we find an appeal, one last call to repentance. Here our Savior is seeking to startle Judas to an understanding of what he was doing. Don't you see that I am the one and only divine Son of God? Don't you understand, Judas, what you are doing? You're becoming a traitor in the cause of the promised Redeemer. And Jesus' words unmask Judas in his kiss of death. We see how far Judas was willing to give himself to the devil's power. Judas, as we know, was one of the 12. He was one of Jesus' closest of friends. He heard Jesus' marvelous teaching. He witnessed with his own eyes his mighty miracles. He became the trusted treasurer of the band of disciples. And Judas preached. He healed. He cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus has just washed his feet. How much our Savior did for Judas. And how bitter it must have been for our Savior to be betrayed by a friend, a friend whom he deeply loved. Ryle says, the false apostle Judas Iscariot has never lacked successors or imitators there have always been those who are ready to betray Christ with a, with a kiss and willing to deliver the gospel to its enemies under the pretense of respect. Judas comes in treachery, but Jesus comes in love. We have a loving, a gracious, and a final appeal. But secondly, in this passage, we find a corrective miracle in verses 49 to 51. 
with the arrival of Judas leading the band of his armed followers, the disciples who are in deep sleep awake. They sense the danger. They feel the malice in the air. And they react partly out of loyalty for Jesus, but also out of a fleshly revenge, resorting to violence. They ask Jesus, shall we strike with the sword? But before awaiting an answer, the ear of the high priest's servant is lopped off. It was a cutlass blunder. And the impulsive, impetuous Peter unsheathed his sword and managed to sever the ear of the high priest's servant. Earlier, we read that Peter vowed to go to death with Jesus. And here he shows his willingness to make good on that promise. There indeed is no cowardice here, but also there is no faith. Perhaps if Judas and the others had stayed awake, if they had prayed, they would have known in that midnight assault that our real warfare is not against flesh and blood, that our weapons are spiritual of prayer, of preaching the gospel. In the midst of this scene, Jesus cries out, that is enough of this, or let them have their way. It could be summarized as no mas. Now there's a time and there's a place for the use of the sword. And one is when there's an unprovoked attack by an unlawful aggressor, when the sword is divinely given to authority in the hands of the state. But this is not an occasion for sword play. Jesus' enemies came with legal authority and an armed resistance against them would make Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself perhaps guilty of resisting arrest. Jesus' enemies were feverishly trying to find a legal charge that they could bring against him. If his arrest was resisted, they could say he was leading a violent uprising. His followers are armed. They're dangerous. His forcible arrest was in the interest of public safety. But resisting arrests would also undo God's plan of salvation. It was God's will for Jesus to be betrayed and arrested and tried and convicted and crucified. It is this very pathway Jesus needed to walk for our 
redemption. A sword defense was also unnecessary for Jesus, as another gospel records, could call down tens of hundreds of angels who would come to his aid. The commentator Kent Hughes uh, describes that there was blood on the ground and there was steel in the air. And what does Jesus do in this circumstance? Jesus quietly and calmly reaches down. He grabs the severed, bloody ear and he takes it to the man and performs a corrective healing. (coughs) It was his last healing. It was restorative of the man who came to take his life. It's truly a sign that Jesus never did anyone harm, that he's not a savior of revenge or retaliation are getting even with enemies. This high priest servant did not ask for the healing. There's no sign at all that he had faith in Christ. This healing may have made little difference perhaps in his own life. There's no record of that in the scriptures. But at this very moment, when Jesus is being arrested, he shows mercy and deep compassion to stop, to heal one of his captors. It indeed was a corrective healing for the high priest's servant but it was also a corrective healing for Jesus' disciples. In this miracle, Jesus shows that his kingdom would not be won or advanced with swords. Jesus, as he tells Pilate in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus makes no effort to avoid capture. His enemies are carrying out their plans, but Jesus remains calm and in complete control. He will not fight against the plan that the Father has for him. This is what he had just been praying for, that he would submit himself to the Father's will to drink the cup of wrath to the dregs. Under attack, Jesus' thoughts were to others, to Judas, to this servant. Later he would pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He turns every situation to the glory 
of God. Again, J.C. Ryle reminds us to suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively, to sit still, still and endure calmly is far harder than to fight a battle. The passive graces of religion are far rarer and precious than active graces. It was indeed a corrective healing, a miracle for this servant, an admonition, an instruction for his disciples. And then finally, thirdly, in verses 52 and 53, we find gutless wonder exposed, a revealing of cowardice. Having appealed to Judas and healing his attacker's ill ear and rebuking in love his disciples, he now turns to his opponents and he challenges them the chief priests, the temple guards, the elders could have easily come at day and nabbed him while he was teaching at the temple. And so Jesus asked, why is it? Why is it that you've come at night with a thug of swords and clubs under the cover of darkness. Jesus, the most truly gentle man who ever lived in a very large arresting party to take him away with swords and staves and spears as if he was the dangerous criminal. And Jesus is saying to them, you, you are wimps. You're gutless cowards. You act out of pure self-interest. If you were men of the light, you would have acted without shame, but you were men of the dark, acting in a covert way. He shows that they are of darkness, that the source of their actions are the very powers of darkness. Jesus says to them, it is the hour of darkness, symbolic of the authority of Satan, of the dark forces of evil. He says to them, it is your hour of darkness because their actions were inspired by the devil. This short period of time, this hour of darkness, when men had their way with the Son of God, begins here with Judas in his treacherous kiss. Jesus' unlawful arrest, his false trial, his suffering unto death. It was the hour when Satan triumphs and the domain of darkness appears to win. When the heel of the Son of Man is bruised 
by the cosmic powers of this present age. Satan and his host appeared to have the upper hand here in Gethsemane and at Calvary, the dark day when Jesus was buried in the grave. But this hour of darkness is fixed. It is of a limited length determined by God. The apparent victory of Satan and his forces is short-lived. For through these very events, God is accomplishing our salvation. Jesus rose on Easter Sunday from the dead. He broke the power of darkness. He crushed Satan's head in his righteous death on the cross and in his resurrection. He's brought light and salvation to all of us who believe in his name. And now, indeed, it is God's hour. The events of Judas and his nefarious kiss help accomplish and roll out God's plan of salvation. God is the one who is altogether sovereign over everything. His sovereignty is absolute and complete. Though it appears Jesus alone, defenseless in the hand of his enemies, but in and through that hour of darkness, he entered into the very realm of Satan's kingdom, penetrating it at the very heart. And in his power of death, he destroyed death. The weakness of God, the defenseless of our Savior Jesus, proves stronger than men and Satan in their might. Jesus is calmly in control. What courage, what strength this gives us and what might appear as an hour of our present darkness of this day, an hour that may to you seem unrelenting. God is the one who is at work even in this dark hour. The hour of darkness does not last a moment longer than what God sees fit for us. And he uses it for our salvation, for the triumph of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. It was Joni Erickson Tata at the tender age of, of 17 when she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and severed her spinal cord and left her paralyzed from the neck down, confined to a wheelchair. Joni has thought much and written much about suffering. She writes, one day God will close the curtain on evil and with it all suffering and sorrow 
Until then, I keep remembering something else. Steve Estes, it's the man that God used in pointing her to the Savior. Remembering something else Steve Estes once told me. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I can smile knowing God is accomplishing what he loves in my life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you for the glory and majesty of our Savior. And in the time of his own arrest, when darkness was arrayed against him, he appealed to his betrayer. He healed one of his captors. He exposed the cowardice of those coming against him. And he did it all in integrity for your glory and your honor. We praise you for such a great savior. And we rejoice that he has triumphed even in and through the hour of darkness, through his righteous death on the cross and his triumph that he is now exalted, risen from the grave at your right hand as our triumphant King and mighty Redeemer. Strengthen our own hearts that we may know that you are a God who is ever with us, that we may know your good purposes, even in the challenges that we face. We give you our praise and ask that we might live for your glory and your honor. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.